Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you turn, uh, if you have children ages 4 to 6, they're invited to go uh, uh, with other children to children's worship training. You may keep your children here with you if you wish, but uh, they, uh, <clears throat> they can go and we'll be returned uh, at the top of the hour, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's only the first two verses. Here God's inspired and therefore an errant word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, And Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that your word would now be open to us. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit who inspired this text, that he would now illumine it, help us to understand, help us to take to heart. By the power of your Spirit, help us to take to life what you teach your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I begin an an occasional new series with you in the morning on 1 Timothy. Uh, Fred and I keep books open, books of the Bible, morning and evening and worship as we march through the Scriptures together. We use the the traditional, good old-fashioned Reformation serial expository preaching model. And so we we take you by the hand and we go through books. We go through them section by section, chapter by chapter in order to help you catch the breadth of Scripture uh, to make sure we cover the whole counsel of God that our diet uh, in the Word might be well-rounded and an aid to our souls. A month ago, uh, together we finished uh, in the morning uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. And so we begin a new book. Uh, next week, Fred will continue to have uh, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, he'll be in chapter 18. He'll have that open. And we'll be centering our thoughts together on entering into the kingdom taught in Luke chapter 18. The whole point here uh, is not so much to highlight the books that uh, we walk through with you uh, in and of themselves, but rather to remind you of the broad principle that at Christ church we love the Lord. And so we love His Word. And we keep it open together. Well, this morning, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, we come to 1 Timothy. And this group of letters together is called the Pastoral Epistles. Uh, By shorthand, it's called the Pastorals. These three form a unique set in the New Testament. They are from the Apostle Paul and written to two different young understudies, two apostolic helpers that were serving under Paul's ministry and at his behest as apostolic helpers. Now the pastorals were loved by the earliest of the church fathers as well as the ones which followed them. Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Irenaeus, and many others, they loved the pastoral epistles and used them extensively. As a matter of fact, Clement and Ignatius were so admiring, uh, they they quoted extensively from 
uh, the pastoral epistles. As a matter of fact, so extensively that sometimes they've been charged with plagiarism, just copying Paul's letters and sending them out uh, to other places. Well, whatever may be the case, it's the inspired Word of God and well and good that it be sent to every area of the church for its life and ministry. But the heretics, they have hated the pastoral epistles. They've been the bad guys, you know. Marcion, Basilis, Tadian. They opposed the pastoral epistles from beginning to end. But in God's kind providence, in the only way that He can do it, the Lord has used these enemies of the cross and enemies of the gospel in order to bear witness to the early date of the pastoral epistles and of their broad importance in the life of the Orthodox Church. Their importance is unmistakable as we open this book, 1 Timothy. Uh, The pastoral epistles are, first of all, personal. They're written from Paul to Timothy or Titus. And it's not just from one person to another, but, but a close, personal Spiritual friendship and relationship is seen between them. The personal nature of this epistle comes shining through. But the pastorals are also public. They're not just private letters not to be shown to anyone else. Paul has a habit in the pastorals of shifting from the first person to the second. He slides from a you to a y'all with great ease. And so he lets us know that yes, Timothy was to read this epistle, but the church at Ephesus where he was ministering was supposed to be reading over his shoulder. That this book was rightly to be in the canon. It was to be read publicly in the church, used in preaching and teaching because it is God's very word. And the pastoral epistles are also prescriptive. That is, they direct, they instruct about proper church order, and also about good pastoral care. That means that this epistle contains the kind of spiritual medicine that you and I need. We need to hear what is written here. We need it for our souls. God means it as the leaves of the trees one day in the new heavens and new earth will be for the healing of the nations. So too this text is meant for our healing and for our strength. So gather round. Let's listen even to the opening salutation of Paul's first epistle to Timothy that our souls might be filled. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And so from the very first verse, 1 Timothy, we see, is a profoundly personal book. It's from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. You remember Paul. He was converted on the road to Damascus at Acts chapter 9. A zealous Pharisee shedding blood, imprisoning uh, those who followed after Jesus. He was suppressing the Christian sect as he saw it and twisting of Old Testament teaching. But God... Twisted him. God blinded him. God struck him down. The very Son of God spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he knew. And that moment, 
that Jesus was God and that everything was different than he had been taught. Oh, he, he was called to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, to the Gentile nations. Yes, he went from synagogue to synagogue in all the diaspora established in the providence of God. But he went there to preach the gospel, not just to the Jew. Yes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And he preached the gospel to Gentiles, lowly and humble, servants and slaves, all the way to kings, to the highest in the land. And Paul bore witness, even in Rome, of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ before his death. Oh, Paul was a great man of God. And his name changed along the way. You know, if you go through the book of Acts and turn the pages, you begin to realize that Before his conversion in Acts 9, he's referred to as Saul. During his conversion, he's referred to as Saul by even Jesus and by the others who who were involved in healing him and, and also in originally training and helping him establish his ministry in Antioch and elsewhere. But then something of a change took place. Oh, uh... Along about Acts chapter 13, the shift occurs. He goes from first gear to second gear. He goes from being the Hebrew named Saul, and he begins using his Roman name. Because he is sent not just to the Jew, but particularly to the Gentiles. And so his his Roman citizenship and his Roman status and even his Roman name become his calling card. Because it reflects the calling that God has on his life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, we read. His title, apostle, means sent one, or or one who comes in the authority of the sender. And so Paul didn't come in his own name. He didn't come in his own importance. He came in the name of Jesus Christ. In that sense, he was like the other twelve, the twelve apostles. You know, there were twelve disciples, and one of them was an evil man, and he died. And then, by the providence of God, by the command of God in the Scriptures that Jesus Himself had inspired of old, uh, from the writing and pen of David, it was said that another one was to replace Him. And so, from the pool of those qualified to give witness to the resurrection of Christ, Matthias was chosen. And the twelve apostles, there symbolically as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus to the twelve tribes of Israel, they settled in Jerusalem and they taught the great harvest of the faith which the Lord reaped at Pentecost. But Paul was not one of those twelve. He was, as he called himself, the least of the apostles. He was one who was less than they because of his strange and unusual way in which he was brought into the kingdom of God. He went from darkness to light, but he had shed innocent and believing blood. And so he honored the twelve. He recognized their place in the unfolding redemption of the Lord. And he knew he had a calling in order to bear witness also to the resurrected Jesus and Lord. 
Oh, each one of the twelve were appointed by Jesus in one way or another, and Paul was as well. And they were all eyewitnesses to the resurrection so that they could bear witness to the empty tomb and to the resurrection life in which believers are called to live. And so all the apostles are foundational to the life of the church, like the prophets of old. They are those who are bearers of the gospel and of God's inspired word. And in so doing, in functioning as an apostle, they do not speak for themselves, but they carry the authority of Jesus Christ, of Jesus himself, the king and head of the church. Oh, what this means for you and me as we open First Timothy is, is that what Paul says to the church, God says, Jesus says to the church. And so he says and speaks through Paul to you and me. And we must take his word to heart and to life. Paul was foundational to the church. Foundational in the same sense that he was a vehicle of special revelation when the Holy Spirit carried him along, when he preached and when he wrote, the very word of God is what came forth. And this means that what Paul says to you and me, we have a duty out of love for the Lord to hearken to and listen to. Yes, Paul's learning and his vocabulary and his personality all come shining through. He was a great and learned man, schooled in the school of Gamaliel. But under inspiration, God is the one who carried him along. God is the one who gave him his word and breathed his word out through him. God is the primary author of Scripture, Old Testament and New. And so this epistle and these opening words are not the words most fundamentally of the Apostle Paul. They are most fundamentally the Word of God to you and me. That means they're infallible. That means they're inerrant. That means we are called to build our life upon them. And indeed, every word is true. During my childhood, I knew very little of Roman culture. You know, I was a a child of the late 60s and of the 70s. I I learned about history and the wider world in the way that everyone in my generation did. It was all by television or else rock and roll. You know, we found out just this last week what uh, bye-bye Miss American Pie meant, or so they say. Well, I learned about Roman culture from... Mostly television commercials. Do you remember some of them? I, the first time I ever saw that I can remember a Roman legion soldier with his breastplate and with his sword and, and in all his grandeur, he stepped forward onto this little screen and he said, Hail Caesar, render some salad. And I was being urged to purchase salad dressing for Caesar salad. I didn't even know what Caesar salad was in those days. My children have not fared any better. Uh, They have learned uh, on the small screen and even on the large screen uh, about Roman culture and habit and dress from this sort of overweight cartoon character, and he comes forward and all he says is, pizza, pizza. (laughs) Now, the Apostle Paul knew Roman culture from the inside out. 
And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he can infallibly take those things of Roman culture and he could adapt them. He could use them for good gospel ends in the lives of God's people. He didn't adapt salad dressing or pizza for some Christian end, although that's an interesting question. But he did take the standard form of a Roman letter and he changed it and he used it for the glory of God. Now to you younger set here, you know there are standard forms of a friendly letter and of a business letter. They actually even have models of them. I bet you could find one on the internet somewhere if you looked. In this day of email, people capitalize and they don't capitalize. Uh, Things have even evolved to this texting business. People don't even use words anymore, do they? It's all these little smiley faces. You know, my favorite one is the smiley face and the eyes are two hearts. Emoticons or something they call them? I don't know. Well, there was a standard Roman letter of the day. And it wasn't like ours. It didn't begin... You know, dear John, and then hold the the name of the author until the very end, love Betty. Right up front, the name of the author was given. Right next to that was the name of the recipient. And then there was a standard form of greeting. Usually it was very sophisticated. Greeting. Sometimes greetings and salutations. And then the content of the letter was given. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, took that normal standard form and he changed it. He Christianized it. He adapted it. Yes, he gave the name of the author. But to that, he added his church title and office, thereby implying the authority on which he spoke and the basis on which the people ought to take to heart what he said. He would sprinkle, even before he got to the recipient's name, titles divine about the first or the second or the third person of the Trinity. He would teach about the triune God in the opening words to his epistle. Before you got to the meat of it and to the very first verb, you found out about God the Father and of Jesus Christ our Lord and of the Holy Spirit even in some cases. And then he would talk about salvation, And about our Christian lives? Oh, Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, transformed the normal form of that day into something that was a useful vehicle for teaching and preaching and aiding the people of God in their Christian growth in life. Under Paul's pen, greetings and salutations turned into grace and mercy and peace In the name of God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Under inspiration, Paul did this infallibly and inerrantly. But in so doing, he laid down an example and a marker and a challenge and a model for us as well. You see, you don't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way that the Apostle Paul did. He was an inspired apostle. He was like the prophets. The Holy Spirit uh, carried him along, and the words that he spoke were the very Word of God breathed out through him. He was superintended from error. You can ask my wife. She'll tell you that I'm not superintended from error. 
But we have the very Word of God written, do we not? We have the illumining power of the Holy Spirit. And we have all of life in which to look and see and strive for occasions and patterns and things in which we might too follow Paul's example and seek to adapt and modify and Christianize and use all of life for the glory of God. What is your profession? What do you do each and every day? Whether you're in the workplace or the marketplace or the home place, whether you're in the school place or or whether you're even in social aspect of life, in each and every area, you too can follow Paul's example and you can take the forms and the structures there and you can use them for the glory of God. You can intentionally use them as occasion to teach and to encourage. God will guide you by the illumining power of His Holy Spirit believer. You are called to subdue all of life to His glory. Even from the very opening words of Paul's epistle, you can follow that same pattern by His grace. And so you should be asking, what opportunities, what occasions has He strategically given you that you might illustrate or illuminate or invigorate the gospel in someone's thought and mind? All of life, All of life is for the glory of God. And what better way than to give gospel connection and gospel communication even in the mundane things of our culture. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, The first epistle of Timothy was also written to Timothy, Paul's true child in the Lord. This letter was addressed to Timothy, who was a young convert from Lystra in Asia Minor. Paul visited there in his first missionary journey, and he went back on his second. And there in the second missionary journey, he met this young man, grown up under the the tutelage and and spiritual oversight of his mother and his grandmother who were part of the church in that place. He had grown up and and come to trust in Christ and the Apostle Paul saw him and knew that he was gifted, that the Lord had called him to ministry and that he could be useful for his missionary work and endeavor. And from that point on, Timothy became Paul's ministry assistant He became Paul's partner in gospel endeavor. You know, it wasn't easy for Timothy to volunteer to help the Apostle Paul. You might think, well, if the Apostle Paul came to town and and if he gave me an opportunity to go with him, man, would I go. I'd be in the book of Acts. I'd get to see all those great places. Oh, my goodness, the miracles that would take place. Oh, yes, but you know, before we go, I'll have to circumcise you. And you'll have to leave your mother and your grandmother. And and if your father, if he's still alive, you won't see him again most likely. Because you see, you are going to be dedicated to gospel service. Ironically, the other recipient of a pastoral epistle, Titus, he was not circumcised. Paul, even in the way he handled his apostolic helpers, 
He was teaching us on the one hand to seek to let nothing stand in the way of good gospel service. And so he was willing to circumcise Timothy by his own hand that they might have a greater open door with the Jews. But when someone began commanding that everyone must be circumcised if they can be a Christian, then Paul said no. And Titus was not in order to uphold the truth of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. Timothy was a faithful apostolic helper. He was Paul's right-hand man. You remember the epistle to the Philippians? You remember Paul's offhanded comment in the middle of the book about Timothy? Paul said to the church in Philippi, I have no one else like him. What a wonderful way to commend his spiritual son. Paul and Timothy traveled together. They evangelized together. They preached together. And they even wrote scripture together. Did you catch that in our our corporate reading together of Colossians chapter 1? From Paul and from Timothy? This letter was Paul's fatherly pastoral advice to a dear spiritual son who was leading the church in Ephesus that they might stand in the heat of the day and give glory to God. It was Paul's apostolic affirmation of Timothy's standing and status. And so we do well to see that personal and that personally important aspect of this book. And even in the opening section here, we see that it teaches truth that is personally important to every soul which is present here. Did you catch it in verse 2? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not just religious throwaway language. This is a summary of what the Christian life is all about. What better words could you use to capture the whole of Christian living? Paul is not merely wishing some nice things for his friend Timothy. What he is doing is he is pronouncing. He is declaring He is praying in the strong name of Jesus Christ to the Heavenly Father who always answers yea and amen to His beloved Son for all of the substance that Timothy will need to complete his mission and ministry faithfully before the Lord. Clearly, 1 Timothy is a personal production to encourage our souls. But this epistle is also more than that. It is not just personal. It is also public. It's a public document. It is written by a public person, the Apostle Paul. He is not speaking and writing in some private capacity. He tells us the authority on which he is writing right up front. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, in Jesus Christ our hope. Here he speaks of his co-joint command. Of the fact that God the Father and God the Son have both appointed him to be an apostle. That he is speaking in the name of the triune God. The Holy Spirit, the third person, is also involved. Because although the Father and the Son are both explicitly mentioned, who's inspiring this text? Who's carrying the Apostle Paul along as he writes these words? Isn't it just like the Holy Spirit not to push himself front and center, but to shine the glory light on the role of the Father and the Son in the life of the Apostle Paul? even as he is gifting and empowering and enabling Paul to write every word? Oh, Paul was not his own. Paul had been bought with a price. Paul was the Lord's inward and outward. And so the pastoral epistles, and this one in particular, is written as an apostolic commission. It's not a private opinion. It's not a white paper that everybody's supposed to debate and talk about. It is a command to be heard. Its origins are in the very throne room of God. Its truth is from the very mind of God. Its grip is all the way down to the very depths of our soul. And so what Paul says here, you and I must heed. He's not speaking as a private person. He's speaking as a public, ecclesial apostle. And the recipient of 1 Timothy isn't a private person. He's a public parson. He's a local church pastor. He stood among and even before the congregation in Ephesus. This letter was his apostolic commission to ongoing pastoral ministry in their midst. His position in the Ephesian church was not private. Together they faced what? Opposition, persecution, and all the while knowing the blessing of God and and the edification of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we, we see that here under God and under Paul's apostolic rule, they all received Timothy's pastoral care and comfort. Their pastor Timothy loved them and cared for their souls. But the content of this epistle, even the content is not private. It's also public and that's seen all the way down to the grammar. Paul did not just write this book to Timothy. Often in the pastoral epistles, there's this shift that takes place. Sometimes Paul's southern drawl can be heard. And he shifts from the first person singular to the plural. He speaks not as one man to another, but he speaks to an entire group. Look at the last verse of this epistle. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 21 Oh, you don't even have to read the first half of the verse. Just look at the last sentence. Grace be with you, Paul says. And then note the little footnote at the bottom of the page. The Greek for you 
is plural. And so what Paul is literally saying here is grace be to y'all. Grace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, our only hope, be to y'all, to each and every one of you. Paul is writing, knowing that he's under inspiration of the Spirit, knowing this is an inspired book and therefore part of the canon, knowing that it's for not just Timothy but for the entire congregation to hear and read and study and be blessed by. Oh, the content of the epistle makes that clear even. You see, in the opening little salutations, Paul doesn't just pick things at random to mention. He will introduce topics and subjects that are going to be expanded upon for verses and chapters later in his epistle. First Timothy opens by referring to God our Savior and Jesus our hope. Now why would the Apostle Paul bring up God as our Savior and Jesus as our hope right in the salutation Right up front in the first two verses. Why do that? Well, you might say, well, those are Christian topics. I mean, he could have mentioned, you know, predestination. He could have mentioned uh, uh, anthropology. He could have mentioned any one of those great theological ology kind of things there, and that would have been just fine. He's the apostle. But my point is, is he didn't. He didn't mention any of those. He mentions that God is our Savior. And he mentions that Christ is our hope. And he mentions that to a church that is under intense pressure and persecution, even from the Roman governing authorities. You see, a lot in our world has changed, but a lot hasn't changed. And back then was just like today. What do the politicians want? They want your money and they want your vote. Uh, There's some of them very soon getting ready to ask for that. But you know, at the end of the day, oftentimes the politicians want exactly what the Roman emperors wanted. They didn't just want your vote. They wanted you to view them as the only source of salvation for the nation and your only hope personally and militarily and economically, you are to look to them as the Savior and the hope of the world. Hadn't changed much, have they? And right up front, in his salutation, the Apostle Paul mentions, he declares, he presses home the fact that our only salvation is not in man, Our only hope is not found in some politician, even an emperor. Our only salvation and hope is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. We must cast our cares upon Him. Only God can save us, not man. And everybody needed to hear that. Not just Timothy. This is not a private book. It's personal. But it's also a public work. And Timothy's, or First Timothy is also a profoundly prescriptive work. Did you catch that little soundbite at the end? The Apostle Paul identifies himself, he identifies the recipient, and then he says these words. Grace 
mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you, what better short tweetable soundbite could there be of the essence of the Christian life? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. I think you could tweet that today. might be good to do it. Because you see, the Apostle Paul took and adapted the old Roman form of greetings and salutations, and he turned it into a memorable summary that the people of God would have ringing in their ears as they first read this letter, and that they could take to heart and mind, and that they could go out of the service and into the world, and they could remember as they faced the heat of the day, who was the only one who could give them the grace that they needed for the Christian life, the mercy that they needed for daily Christian living, and the peace that they needed that they might glorify God with every aspect of their lives. Grace and peace were by and large the majority of the occasions uh, or statements that the Apostle Paul used in the opening of his epistles. He would say grace and he would mean not only the work of Christ, but also its application to us. That Jesus lived and died for our sins and that the Holy Spirit would take the worst work of Calvary and the good things of Christ and His benefits and apply them progressively to our lives that we might be fit for heaven and that we might live with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And peace. Paul mentioned that in every epistle, other epistle as well. It was a common Jewish greeting. Even Jesus used it in the Gospels. But under Paul's pen, it's not a a statement about may you have an outward life free of persecution and and military pressure. It It was an inward matter. May God give you shalom in the depth of your being. May He give you peace in your life and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And to this ideal of gospel tranquility, which was so needed so that the people of God in that day and this could dare to live in peace in a world torn apart on every hand, Paul unusually adds a third thing right in the middle. Grace, mercy, and peace, he says to his young spiritual son, Timothy. This term mercy in Greek is from the Old Testament hesed, meaning covenant love or loving kindness of God. It meant that the whole sweep of redemptive history, from God's working with Adam and Eve in the garden even after their sin, promising the coming of one who would crush the head of the serpent and would triumph over him in their lives. Through the life of Noah, through the life of Abraham, through the life of Moses and of David, all of it leading to the life of Jesus and the promised new covenant to come, that all of that covenant love and all of that covenant work, that that would be the fount of every blessing to Timothy and to you and to me. That we would come and know the forgiveness and the covenant mercy of God as He takes broken sinners like us and gives us the saving faith that we need 
that we might live in union and communion with Him forever. Oh, the source of our Christian life is found in God and what He does in His covenant love for us and in spite of ourselves. And the unity of our Christian life is also here traced because did you catch it? He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There's that plural. He's not just talking about himself and Timothy. He's talking about the fact that he, Paul, is united to Christ by faith and by the Spirit. And that he, Timothy, is united to Christ and by the Spirit. Uh, by faith and by the Spirit. And so together they're in the one body of Christ, along with every other believer who loves and trusts in the Lord with their whole heart, united to the Savior, means that we are no longer alone, but we walk through this life by the grace and by the mercy and by the peace of God in our lives, arm in arm. Oh, my friend, will you hear? Do you see? Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying to you? That if you but love and look to Christ alone, that you will never be alone again, but you will be with Him, and you will be with His people, and you will know blessing forever. Trust in Him. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that you would help us to love Jesus and that you would help us like Paul to serve him all our days to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.